This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. Today, my guest is Nate Crawford. Nate is the director of Here Here, a nonprofit group that advocates on behalf of individuals with mental health issues. In this episode, we learn a bit about Nate's background, and Nate also shares about how having bipolar disorder has affected his life in general and how the mentally ill are received by churches in particular. We also talk about what exactly it is that makes him stay and what sustains his belief. This conversation includes frank discussions about mental health, so if that is triggering to you, please bear that in mind. We also do our best to provide some basic resources for folks who may be experiencing mental health issues or have a loved one they seek to understand better. Supplemental details are available in the show notes. If you haven't subscribed yet to Exvangelical, please do so, and rate and review us on iTunes. Every review helps. Now let's get into it. Today I'm speaking with uh, Nathan Crawford. He is a uh, PhD from Loyola University, as well as uh, a has been in a, in a pastorate in a number of different places throughout his uh, life. And now he is the leader of a nonprofit called Here Here, um, which focuses on the church and mental illness. Is that a, a proper way to to summarize that, Nathan? Uh, yeah, we focus on anybody in mental illness, but we work with churches especially. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great. Well, welcome, uh, welcome Nathan to Exvangelical. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it a lot. So let's get started. Um, let's talk a little bit about where you grew up. Um, I believe you're from Northern Indiana. Is that right? Yep. I'm from Wheatfield or Cornfields. Actually. Uh, we lived in, I live in Plymouth, Indiana, uh, which is just south of South Bend. Um, some people call it God's country because there's, you know, Notre Dame, the Golden Dome and everything. But uh, Football Jesus. Yeah, Touchdown Jesus is right there. That's <laughs> yeah. actually the library at uh, Notre Dame. And I've spent many a night with Jesus in that library. So, <laughs> nice. yeah. So uh, that's where we're at. And I got three kids, three boys that are 10, 6, and 4. I'm married to my wife for 13 years now. So, wow. Congratulations. Mazel thanks. tov. That's a, That's that's no small accomplishment. Thirteen years plus three kids—that's that's something right there. So. Yeah, I, I stay home with the three boys too, which is a, a world in and of itself. So I work from home, and it's fun. So good. I'm I'm glad to hear that. And I just started uh, starting. I just started staying home with um, with Sophia, my my daughter, uh, just in the last couple of months, and it's been a completely unexpected adventure, but um, but pretty fun all t- all told. So. It's a different life, so <laughs> just give it that. Yeah. Uh, so you grew up in Plymouth. Um, what what was what was that area like? I um, I grew up in uh, Crawfordsville, Indiana, which is a uh, central Indiana, and I don't. I imagine it was fairly similar. Um, our that that town was about sixteen thousand people, small. Um, There's a mix of farming as well as. Uh, as well as some light industry and things like that. There were uh, printing plants and things like that in the area. What was the, what was the overall environment like for you growing up? 
uh, about similar, a lot of farming, although a lot of most of my friends and a lot of people here in town, there's a lot of manufacturing. Uh, a lot of people work in Elkhart and Goshen doing uh, mobile home stuff, working on mobile homes or manufactured homes, uh, that kind of stuff, uh, RVs. And then, um, yeah, I don't, I mean, that was economically, we're, you know, probably lower middle class. Uh, 10,000 people, I think, is what we top out at. Usually, if we get to 11,000, then a plant closes and there's 1,000 people that leave. Um, so that's about that's about what, it, uh, what it was. I, I don't think – I think the high school still has – I graduate. my graduating class was about – was well, we started at 260 and we lost 240 – or we went down to 240 uh, my senior year because we lost a number of uh, students. So – but I think that the graduating classes are still at 260. 280 so we're not it's not like we're gaining a lot of people or losing a lot of people we're just kind of plugging along just maintaining your equilibrium there yep nothing <laughs> nothing changes it's weird it it's yeah it's the strangest thing so kind of like stepford except not like that at all so, <laughs> so yeah so um so you're a hoosier um all right i did i had uh, and did you ever did you ever read vonnegut at any point the, oh yeah, I've heard lots of Vonnegut. Yeah. yeah. So his his whole thing about um, um, the Grand Falloon, Wampeter, and Carass, and everything—I forget which one it is. I think it's Grand Fallooning, where you create little groups of uh, um, you know people that have some something in common, and they think it's you know something special. And it, he, his example, because he's from Indianapolis, is being a Hoosier. You know, <laughs> like finding someone else that's a Hoosier, and that's like something to bond with. But. Um, but anyways, I, I don't know why that popped into my head. <laughs> no, 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 I'm thinking like, yeah, I remember when I read that essay, that, that thing, I thought of David Letterman because every time Letterman sees like another Hoosier, he's like, hey, you're a Hoosier. It's like almost <laughs> yeah. last time Letterman was even in Indy, you know, like it just is. Yeah, I know what you're saying. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's kind of the same thing. Like somebody from Evansville is like, because Evansville is like as far away from me as you could possibly get in Indiana. And they're still like, hey, we're Hoosiers together. And it's like, well, I'm. I'm really more of a Chicago person than uh, uh, Evansville, but sure, we're Hoosiers. So. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's all fun. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, uh, what was uh, what was growing up like for you in in Plymouth? Um, we talked a little bit here just about what it was like and what Plymouth was like, but what was your youth kind of like in that area? I don't know. It was typical, I think. Uh, I don't have anything to compare. I mean, like, I was always normal and stuff. <laughs> yeah. I had two parents that lived together, you know, like this, you know, married and they're still together. Uh, my dad's, uh, they celebrate, what, 38, 39 wow. years this year. So, uh, in a, a couple, in a week or two. And then, uh, you know, like, I had a brother and two sisters. I was the oldest. Uh, we didn't, we did not go to church until I was 12 or 13, 12, I think. Um, I did have, but a lot of my friends went to church, so I was kind of aware, just never there. Um, didn't feel a whole lot of need. And then also, um, when I was in elementary school, the good, the good, um, you know, scholar that I am, I wrote a, uh, like a three or four page paper on uh, evolution and my friend's mom was abhorred that. I was allowed to do that and that uh, it happened. I was, I think I was in fifth grade. Oh, really? So, oh yeah. So I did it for extra credit that I didn't need. So, <laughs> well. you know, the teacher challenged me and I was like, fine, I'll do it. I'll show you what this is. So, uh, 
And then, but that was kind of, I mean, that was, my childhood was, was like that. I was a super, uh, motivated and, and a child, super hard on myself to not only be the, the best that I could be, or even the best in Plymouth or the best in Indiana, but like the best in the entire world. I've learned to tone it down a little bit, but, uh, um, and yeah, so that's kind of, that was kind of my childhood. Uh, trying to think of anything. I played sports. I love baseball, love baseball. I'm a huge Cubs fan. Um, my dad tried to raise me as a Purdue fan. Um, he's got my son hooked. I'm, I'm, I go, <laughs> I go with my son. Uh, so my parents still live here in town with us. So they yeah. see, they see my kids quite a bit and stuff. So, um, and around quite a bit, which is nice. It's really nice. But yeah. Um, yeah, we're huge Chicago, you know, Cubs, sport, uh, Blackhawks, Bulls, Bears, um, nice. Bear, Bears. So yeah. 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 My, uh, my dad went to Purdue and so did my, so did my mom. Um, they're from, they're both from a small town in Southern Indiana and they went to Purdue and my, my dad really overexposed me to Purdue in particular. Um, he, you know, I, my first pre football game, I was three months old, you know, and then they've been like season ticket holders. They, uh, and I, we went all the time <laughs> to yeah, like yeah. Purdue, uh, basketball and football. And I mean, it's kind of similar to being a Cubs fan because, you know, they're always, they always feel like they're on the cusp of greatness. And then, you know, something happens like the Drew Brees era was great, but, um, but that kind of moment accepting <laughs> being a Purdue fan is, is, is very similar to being a Cubs fan and that you're very acquainted with suffering. As yeah. far as as far as sports goes, um, and uh, he was also uh, he was also not uh, successful in in getting me to attend Purdue or uh, or really get me to to latch in. <laughs> so, <laughs> but now my my uh, my nephew is is his uh, his he's my nephew's ten and he's his like basketball football go to now. He was he's able to take him down from the Chicago area down to uh, Purdue pretty regularly to see those games. But interesting, interesting that there's the Purdue connection because uh, you never know with that. Well, you're actually within shouting distance of Notre Dame, so it's actually pretty surprising. Uh, yeah, you know what? We, uh, I grew up just Notre Dame is a place that I just don't like. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty awful. So, like, I always felt kind of dirty going on campus to like do research and stuff because I was living in Plymouth while I was writing my dissertation, and so I go and use their library, and I still felt like kind of icky, like, <laughs> like I shouldn't be here. This is a bad place, even though they have more books than I could ever, you know, that I that I need that I can get through. But uh, yeah, 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 it was weird. Like that that whole like psychology was still built in there that this is not what I'm supposed to be doing. So <laughs> yeah. So let's uh, let's loop back a little bit to you uh, mentioned that um, you didn't go to church really regularly until you were twelve. Um, but just given kind of the nature of this this podcast and the little the little bit that we were able to, uh, I was able to get some background on you and everything. Um, you didn't really attend with your family, so there wasn't that like familial influence. Um, but then starting in high school, you really got into youth group. I did. Yeah. Yeah. I became the evangelical junkie. So, um, they got me hooked pretty bad. 
and you know, it was, it was good. I met a lot of great people. It was, uh, I met a lot of good friends. Um, I found, you know, a really strong faith. And I should say like my parents, when I was 12, they started going and I, you know, like it was really actually annoying because they kept making me go to church when we hadn't gone before. Like my Sunday mornings were supposed to be spent, especially in the fall with like Chris Berman and Tom Jackson, like discussing, uh, you know, the football for the, for the, for the day and stuff. And so, <laughs> so it was not ideal. Um, and even in the summers baseball, you know, baseball in the morning or whatever on ESPN. So, um, my brother and I were both kind of annoyed, but we, you know, we don't have a whole lot of choice. So we did it. Um, but then something switched when I was in between my eighth grade year and going into high school. And I don't, you know, it's one of those like God things. I don't know exactly what happened, but somewhere in there in between uh, graduating from junior high and going into the high school, uh, I, you know, I really, I kind of committed myself to uh, this religiosity and to uh, being a Christian and to living that out on a day-to-day basis. Um, My thing was there were a lot of people that like went to church and like did church and stuff in our town and not a lot of them. Well, I guess this is probably still true, but not a lot of them like really like, I don't know if they really believed or like it didn't matter or whatever. And I was like, I was one of those people, like if I was going to do it, I was going to do it. And so I, it was going to, you know, be, my be all end all. And so, um, that's what I did in high school. And in fact, when I was a senior in high school, I got off a half day because I had enough credits to graduate after my junior year, except I had to take English and government and econ. Those are the two things I had to take. And so I threw a fit and said, why, why in the world would I have to stay here all day and take courses that I have no interest in, um, and really waste money to be here. And they said, well, you have to go to school. And I said, well, I'm 18. I don't, I, I'm, I turned 18 before I, my senior year. I don't have to really do anything. Go get my, you know, my GED. And, uh, so we came to a compromise that I went and I did a couple other courses. Um, I took calculus and I took, uh, business law and then I was done for the day and I went and worked to the church as an intern. So, um, I was like that kid and, <laughs> and uh, and it was great. I mean, like the, the thing was like, it was, it set a tone for the rest of, uh, what I would do in my life and stuff, because I, um, another guy set up, we had this, this, we called it an after school program. Um, it wasn't school program, but it was for junior hires. And, uh, cause, uh, we had a place downtown and it was just like three blocks away from the junior high. And so we had pool tables and ping pong and all this stuff that people could come in and play and whatever else. And so, um, I kind of took that over my junior year and then like really ran it my senior year and, uh, it was really successful and everything. And, um, I was really, uh, I think we even got some grants for it, I believe, and, uh, which is weird, you know, we got the 18 year old filling out grant forms and stuff, but, um, we, uh, but it, it was a really successful one. It set me on, uh, set my tone because I was kind of like, you know, this is where I think church should be or what it should do. Like finding the, you know, these kids were, they didn't have anywhere else to go after school. You know, they weren't in sports, they were in band, they were, um, you know, kind of messy, dingy, um, you know, they're junior higher, so they weren't, it, there wasn't a lot of like drugs or like sex addicts or anything like that, but it was still like, these were the kids that were at risk for that kind of stuff. And like, we were, you know, in the midst of like getting our hands dirty just by being with them, you know? And so, or at least that's how people look, looked at it. 
Um, and I didn't think about it as much then as I do now about, you know, like, uh, anyway, uh, kind of like analyzing all that kind of stuff. But that that kind of set the tone uh, for, for how I thought church should be and like what I actually thought, you know, we, we should do is that we should actually, you know, follow the Beatitudes. So, um, so is that, it hasn't gone very well. So is that, what? So is that, uh, so as far as motivation, motivating factors, um, let's, uh, that's my first follow-up question here. As far as like motivating factors for you, when you were that age, what was it that was, you know, kind of pushing you forward and, and being so involved in youth groups and things like that? Um, because to me, I like I I know my reasons. I was also like I was at church like five six times a week, um, when I was in high school. Like, and I was super interested in that. But to me, the thing that I find really interesting in these conversations is finding out what people's individual motivators were. So what was what was like pushing you towards that sort of path, like internally when you were doing all of this, like you were leaving work, not work, leaving school early in order to work at a church. Like what, what at 18 was pushing you in that direction so hard? Uh, I don't, you know what? I don't know me. I had to, you know, like I have a bit of a Messiah complex. I think it goes, if, yeah, we'll get to this later, but I have bipolar disorder. This tends to cover color a whole lot of, of life. And when I feel good, um, the belief that I can save the world is not that far fetched to me. So, um, uh, which is really annoying for everybody else because I, you know, anyway, so, uh, but that, you know, like this, so I think that was at work a little bit. Um, but then also I wanted to please people in the church. I wanted to make sure that, and I wanted to be the the best youth group kid that had ever come through there, I think. Now, and I also think that there was a, you know, there's also the God thing. Like, I, I I really do believe that I was, I was trying to do God's work. And I was, you know, like, I mean, I don't, I sometimes I feel like I can, I can discount that, but I, I do feel like God has been leading me and working and, 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 and moving me. And so, and I think in that, in that time he was too, but I, I don't think that it was always, I think God's movement and some of the movements, of some of the people around me were not always um, in sync, if that makes sense. So people pushed me and encouraged me to, they used my passion and my, my deep sense of trying to be, of trying to do the absolute best to push me to, 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 to be the best. Um, and then also, uh, but then also I, uh, I do believe that God was working at that time and we did good things. And I still, I actually had, you know, I've run into people that were like, Oh yeah, I remember you from, you know, you did that thing and that was really cool. Cause of course the year after I left, they shut it down. So, um, <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> Hey, the, the 18 year old intern isn't here to do it anymore. So let's chuck this. <laughs> so, it was working really well, but whatever. So, um, so, uh, that, so, you know, that, that, yeah, I, I think those are the motivating factors and stuff. I really did want to please a lot of people. Like, and I, and, but it, that wasn't the whole thing. Okay. I mean, that wasn't everything. Yeah. That's a good question. What were the circumstances or was this a, uh, evangelical church? Was this, uh, like a non-denominational type of church situation that you were working in? 
It was a Westland church. Okay. Okay. I have some bitter feelings through that and another episode and stuff like that. I tend to, I don't try to start controversies or problems or anything like that. However, um, I've noticed that, uh, I find myself in the midst of problems and that, and I found myself in the midst of a problem. Then a youth pastor left, um, and there was a kind of a power vacuum and some people thought that I was in charge. Other people thought they were in charge and I was 18 and, um, the church just didn't do anything to protect me from some of the nastiness that can happen to, to people from people and stuff. And so, um, so I was still running this program and then I was expected to kind of like, the, the, the pastor expected me to pick up a lot of what the youth pastor was doing. And so like, I, I mean, I was going to high school and working like 30 hours a week. And so, um, and then getting railed on by parents and other people who were like, well, why isn't this happening? Or, you know, like I want to be in charge. And it's like, well, go ahead. Well, I don't want to do all that. Well, th- I mean, that's what being in, in charge entails. So like, it was a very, uh, it was actually a very, at the end of it, it was a very brutal period for me. And I was, uh, I was chewed up and spit out. So by the time I got out of high school, um, I was going to a Christian college. Like I, the only thing I wanted to do was just get out of here. I wanted to be away from that church. I wanted to be away from everything because, um, it had, been, it, it had just gotten so like, it was my first experience of, yeah, of church just being like nasty. Like, and this happened a couple of more times. Um, when you work in the church, this, this happens, but like that became, yeah. So, and no one, no one had my interests. And, in, and in, like, as a 35 year old, I can be like, well, no one had my interests at heart. And like, and that's, you know, that I can understand that. But at 18, like, that was a totally different thing. And my first experience, like, you know, kind of being in charge and stuff. So, yeah. And you, and I mean, teenagers are just like raw nerves. So, I mean, everybody goes through it, but like, I don't, I don't know to me, like looking back on my, my 18 year old self and looking at someone that had all these like deep religious impulses as well as a whole bunch of other deep impulses. And they were all like right there at the surface. Um, it's, it's hard to, I don't know to now being in, being in my thirties and like, I don't know, treat, treat them literally with kid gloves because they're kid, you know, they're kids, but they're kids. <laughs> yeah, they're kids. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, well, it also became hard because, um, as I graduated. So at that point I started, my mental illness had gotten up and down quite a bit my senior year and then, um, and stuff. And so, like that didn't, that just made it much worse. Like my depressions were much worse and my highs were, were worse and no one had any idea. Like, that's the thing is like, I wasn't diagnosed until I was 31. Um, some people thought I might have depression, but a, a counselor here that was recommended to us by a person in church, um, ended up talking to me and he's like, Oh, you're just, you're just kind of moody. And it's like, well, <laughs> that's kind of the definition of bipolar, but yeah. Okay. So, um, he, and he was like, he was like, and I gave him all the church answers that he was a Christian counselor. Um, and I gave him all the church answers that he, that he wanted. And so he was like, ah, oh, you're fine. And you know, I, I wasn't. So, um, so like that all, that all spins into it too. So it's like, um, so yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty terrible. I mean, but whatever. I mean, like it, it is what it is. Like I can't, go back i right yeah you you can't you can't change the past for sure 
Um, right. but it's a lot of, a lot of what you ran into was a lot of just interpersonal struggles, interpersonal power struggles that happen within a church, especially a smaller church, like smaller churches, just there's not a lot of people and small, like small, small number of people and probably an, a large number of big egos. Um, and that's just kind of the way, way it can happen. Um, and I'm probably reading into my own experience there a little bit, but I'm also thinking just from what you're saying here that that may have been part of your experience there. Um, yeah, actually, this church was, was 800 people, but oh wow, okay, so that's I yeah. mean that's a fairly yeah. size. Okay, knowing knowing what I do know about the denomination, that's not. I mean, that's a little surprising as far as the number. <laughs> yeah, well, but, and I, th- I think that what you're saying though is right about especially about like small town, like everyone's in like each other's business and like. And, uh, and like people that are used to being in charge at like their work or their whatever, um, will kind of come in and like, you know, for lack of a better word, like throw their weight around and it can, it's, yeah, it's interesting. So, yeah. So you go from this experience where you're like, you're in charge as an 18 year old, but also you're in over your head as an 18 year old. And then do you go straight from that to college? Is that um or, yep. okay so you go straight to college and you go to an evangelical christian college did you enter into that college in like a sort of disenchanted frame of mind what what was that like i mean you're you're coming from this like you're coming from this experience that like like you've said is just very harrowing in a lot of ways um what was it like entering into that environment uh it was awful um <laughs> I really actually when when we were driving down I, I well, actually when we were packing up because I drove down with a friend but I told my parents I don't want to go uh, I'm I'm just going to I'm going to stay out for I'll go to community college or I'll go to Ball State or, or something like that and they were like we're going like right now and stuff I mean it was so I was such a butt about it that my mom still to this day was like that's the maddest I've ever been at you in my entire life like we're dropping you off of college and you're like, don't leave me. I don't, I want to go home. You know? And and she was like, you were just such a, and I wasn't, I actually, I wasn't like, don't leave me. I was like, you guys suck for leaving me. I can't believe you're going <laughs> to leave me in this place that I don't want to be. So, and, and part of it is I was, I was dating a girl uh, at a different school. I was also, again, falling into a pretty bad uh, depression. Um, that uh, in fact, actually, yeah, my bipolar came really, it really manifested my right there at the beginning of my freshman year of college. So that was a lot of fun. Um, like I would go days without sleeping and then I was, all I would want to do was sleep and I'd be up and down and stuff. And, um, I rapid cycle. So, uh, that means that like a normal person might have like one up and one down a year. And like, I'll go through like three a month if, it, if things aren't medicated and stuff. So, um, they, finally, by the time I was my second semester started, I finally started to get some, some help. Uh, but, um, but yeah, anyway, so dealing with all that coursework and then coming and then I was, I was going to be a Christian ministry major and a pre-law political science major. Um, cause I thought that I wanted to be a lawyer. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but I was going to do both of them. Um, and then uh, funnily enough, uh, my 
sophomore year, uh, I had to go in. I went in and I was trying to get some courses switched around or whatever. And I was talking to a professor there um, who was in the political science department. And finally, he just looked at me after asking me a couple of questions. And he said, you, you can't take courses from me. And I said, what, what do you mean? And he's like, you'll fail. And I said, I think I'm I'm a pretty bright guy. Like I can I can deal with whatever you throw at me. And he was like, no, no, no. I think you're off your rocker. Like, I disagree with everything you say. And if you disagree with me in class, I'll fail you. And I was like, well, this seems to be a, a rather large problem. Like, because you're right, I do disagree with you. And and he was like, you you can't be a political science, pre-law, history, anything in this department. And I was like, okay. So I was a Christian ministries major. Okay. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> huh? Well. So uh, it was a, it's a great story, though, to tell people, like, this open Christian college and they're like, Nope, go away. Like, Yeah. I think I know which professor that was too. Yeah. <laughs> I'm guessing he was an, a more elderly gentleman and, uh, he yeah. was, he looked like Mr. Burns. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. I know who it is. <laughs> I took several classes with him. Oh, he sorry. would have failed you. <laughs> he would, yeah. Well, <laughs> even what little I know about you and what I do know about myself and, and his, uh, and having, had to take his classes and give his answers back to him. He would have failed you. <laughs> um, so you, so you were a Christian ministries major. Is that what, you know, made you choose Christian college? Um, cause to me, and another interesting thing about this whole subculture that we, we're examining here is that, you know, some people are like, it's just like the default choice. It's kind of whatever their parents or whatever kind of, steered them towards forever or there was more of a, like a vocational aspect to it. Um, was it a little bit of both? Was it one more than the other uh, as far as what made you choose going to Christian college? Cause that to me is one of the things that looking back, um, at my own life story, like what led me to Christian college instead of any other college, really? I was my, my church made me and my youth pastor made me so afraid that if I went to a secular school that I would like go to hell. I mean, for lack of a better term, like I would lose my salvation and I would get involved in a fraternity and become this alcoholic who ended up with HIV and spread it around. And I mean, like your worst nightmares, like, you know, come true and stuff. And so I, that was, uh, you know, like, that that was a lot of my motivating factor. Like I did want to, I did want to pursue ministry in some sort of way. Uh, I was really interested in religion and philosophy. I was really interested in in and in, um, and think and like and exploring like a ministry thing. But um, the other thing is like no one actually told me that there's this thing called seminary that you can go to if you go to a if you go to like a secular school. You know, like if you go to and like. And because uh, I remember sitting in and going uh, with my guidance counselor and being like, well, if I want to be a pastor, like I have to go to a Christian school. And she's like, well, you can study philosophy at I think she said Purdue or Ball State Religious Studies. And I was like, I don't think that's the same thing. Like I'm looking at the two course catalogs and like those aren't the same at all. And now I tell students all the time, like find the cheapest school you can go to if you want to go to ministry and go to that and get a degree really quickly and then go to seminary because, um, that's the only, like, that's the correct path. Like, because that's, 
that's uh, the spending the time and the effort and the energy in a, in a place. And I don't know that a 22 year old should be given a, a church, you know, like I just, I'm not, I'm not convinced. Anyway, that's a whole other. <laughs> yeah, we can. That's a whole other podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Nate's musings on theological education. Uh, but no, I, but so no one told me about seminary and like that would have been a legit option for me. But um, because once, once I finished my freshman year, I knew I'm going on for graduate work. Like I, I knew that. Um, and so, because uh, I, I knew that the answers that I wanted or even that I wanted uh, – the questions that I wanted to explore, we weren't going to explore them in, in my undergrad. Like that just wasn't going to happen. Um, and it wasn't like I was uh, I was being bad or, or annoying or anything. Like I just was – I was starting to think about things at a, at a sort of a different level. You know, like I was starting to say things like Jesus is a socialist. Uh, which went over really well uh, at our college um, <laughs> and uh, and and began to explore some of uh, you know the implications of that and looking at some you know uh, you know like I think I started reading Martin Luther King jr a little more seriously than in going like this has more than just like hey kumbaya type stuff like he's really revolutionary you know like um and and so I just knew. In talking to some of our professors, some of my professors and stuff, I knew that that wasn't going to be explored in the depth that I wanted it to, and so I uh, I wanted to go on and, and do something more. Um, and that's kind of what I just kept doing is and stuff. So um, so anyway, to, getting back to why I chose Christian College, that's why I was scared I was going to hell, and then um, and then once I was a freshman, I really thought I was going to hell. And, but they were asking questions and they had the resources and stuff there to explore the questions that I wanted to explore. And so I stayed. Um, and I was, I was really comfortable there by the end of my freshman year. Like, uh, I was part of, um, a dorm that was really close knit. Um, and, uh, it's not there anymore because the school just tears things down. Like it's like, Hey, we built this toilet yesterday. We should rip it apart. Um, so like, (laughs) So, like, uh, um, so it's not there anymore. Uh, and it was, it was great. And we all walked and cried when it fell down. So, uh, but it was a, it was a good place and I was really comfortable in that dorm and stuff. And, and yeah, I just, you know, we had friends and, and I had people and sure. uh, it was, yeah. it was good. You know, like it, no, it, it, it just became a good, a good place. It just was like, it was a weird beginning. It's a really yeah. strange beginning. So. Yeah. I hear that. I hear that. And, uh, I mean, the, the thing that makes people stay in a situation that might be uncomfortable is always, is, is going to be other people. You know, it's like, if you find people that you care for, you're going to stick around for the people. <laughs> um, yeah. so, so, I mean, that's, that's great. it's great that you found that. Um, at the same time, you have this narrative happening in your, in your thinking that's counter to the, overall culture that's there either within the things that the professors are teaching or the things that the students are believing or both. Um, so you are developing these curiosities about Jesus interpreting Jesus as a socialist. That is not necessarily going to be something that is going to be welcomed in a very conservative evangelical place. Um, so what was, what was that like? I mean, did, what was your thinking like when you were at, at, in that environment, you're in a very, um, 
man, I don't even know how to say this. You know, you're in a very, you're, you're in a place where it's very, you have this type of teaching and you accept it or you're wrong sort of way. And that's sort of how, um, it's sort of how things were communicated in different parts of that environment, whether it's in the classes or amongst your peers. Um, what was, what was that like for you? I will say that my peers um, were uh, fan, pretty fantastic. Um, there was a group of us that was able to kind of really explore and and think, and we all went in different ways. Um, you know, like I kind of became the radical Methodist. There was a guy that became the High Anglican. Um, you know, there's a Mennonite, uh, a Buddhist. Um, I don't know what a German idealist, I guess. Uh, you know, so there's like, so like we all started off there and we were all kind of asking, like, there was a group of people asking the same sort of questions and they weren't happy with the answers. And so, um, it wasn't strange for us to be reading, you know, like this group of people to be reading, you know, Kant or Karl Barth or something, uh, uh, or, you know, um, Gandhi, uh, whatever else and doing that and then talking about it with each other outside of class, you know, like that wasn't like, that wasn't unusual. And so, um, and we, you know, our dorm room became a, a place where we could explore and, and give ideas or whatever. And other places did. And, you know, we, we, uh, and that became that, that actually became as much of part of my college experience as going to class. Uh, classes were just the places where, I was given the tools and a new guy to, to look up or a new girl to look up or whatever. Like it really, they weren't my, <laughs> in my undergraduate, they were not my main interest. And in my seminary degree, I did 15 hours. So I did a 60 hour degree at seminary and I had 15 hours of independent study. So, um, you know, I, class has never been my, my, my thing. I don't like going, I don't want people, somebody telling me what to, to think or, or way thing is and stuff. And so, um, I was much more interested in being able to be given the tools to explore what I wanted to explore. And that's kind of what, what we did. Um, and in fact, I told somebody, told somebody the other day that there was a teacher that taught a bunch of the practical courses and was like, when you get into a church, this is what you're going to do. And I was like, everything he told me was wrong. Everything. <laughs> I took like four classes from this person and like, it was, I might as well have taken that tuition money and put it on my lawn and lit it on fire. Like it was, it was, that's what it was. I was like, I don't know how you can, I don't know how you can decipher, like, this is what you're going to do when you get into a church. Like, cause every church is so different and, and they do think like, you know, like I try, I try running a meeting like he did and people were like freaking out, you know, because yeah. Anyway. So like, I, so yeah, classes were just not, they weren't my, my main, my main source of learning and, and time was spent, you know, with these other people, guys and gals and stuff. And some of them, you know, we're all in different places now and stuff, but it's, it, you know, some of us have PhDs and some of us don't, some of us have, you know, do, uh, writing and, and I don't know what else. So. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, that's what really, that's what really stuck with me while I was at school. Um, and, and you know what, and we were all like, it's funny now, I think like we were all, uh, examining the limits of evangelical culture. 
uh, and it's funny because I can think of that group. I don't know that anybody, I think the one person in that group might call them like out of the 10, uh, might call themselves an evangelical today because of, you know, like just because the, the questions and the, the experiences and the, you know, stuff that they, uh, that we were looking at and taking seriously, it just wasn't, it wasn't explored in, in class and it wasn't stuff that evangelicalism to today or even back then was able to uh, encompass or take seriously. And so with that, what, what do you think led to, your break, so to speak, with evangelicalism. There's that is a major theme of a lot of these conversations is sort of, you know, really bristling at the at the way it can confine not only not only your faith, but also just so many other aspects of, of life. I know you already kind of talked about it. You you talked about it at length in regards to how you did that at school in undergrad. Um did you continue, how did, how did that sort of, you know, wrestling with the, with the limits of evangelicalism, how did that continue after college? Well, I went to an evangelical seminary, I went to Asbury, um, which was, it was great. Like I, I loved it. My wife and I loved it. Um, and they were, cause they really honestly allowed me to wrestle with the questions and the issues that I wanted to wrestle with and, uh, explore all that stuff. But there was a couple points at Asbury where I realized I'm not in the same group as some of the people here. And what I thought, like, even at Asbury, and even actually when I got to Loyola, um, there was another guy there. And we, there was a couple other people there. And we, we all kind of called ourselves evangelicals. But it, it was obvious because uh, it, it became obvious a little, a little on that – we were not evangelicals like people who uh, claimed evangelicalism were like kind of the mantle carriers were evangelicals. Like, and so that became a real sore. I mean, that became a real. So for me, like that, that intellectual movement, it basically was like, I don't know that I've moved a whole lot. Like, you know, the, the Jesus is a socialist and like, and that kind of stuff. Like, I don't know that I'm real far out, but I think that even evangelicalism as an entity has moved further and further into a conservative world, uh, that has, um, and, a, and, a, and a, well, I'm going to call it hermeneutic, um, that ties things up so neatly that I just, uh, I, I, I can't fit there. And then also what I began to realize, um, as I had kids is evangelicals are kind of nasty people. Like <laughs> I keep, I keep having these experiences. Like I keep, working in churches and evangelical churches and with evangelical denominations. And I keep doing this stuff. And what I keep finding out is that like, there's no, there's no correlation between belief and actual practice for a lot of people. And as I had my first, my first son, I thought, I don't want him. I I just don't want this. Like I'd rather, I I said to my wife, I'd rather him, you know, be raised by, Roman Catholics that are, you know, who I, I vehemently disagree about some stuff like women in ministry and like the, the Pope thing and that kind of stuff. But like, at least they're trying, you know, like if you take the catechism seriously and some of that stuff, like at least they're, you know, trying to live out this, this life and stuff. And I said, you know, so much evangelicalism is about power and who's in charge. And like, I want to be in charge and stuff. And I said, I just like, 
it's so antithetical to, to Jesus. I said, I just don't want my son raised in that. And so that became a sticking point for us. Some of the uh, friendships we made in Chicago, um, it became apparent that that, that was a issue. But then also uh, for, for me, it really became a point uh, for, um, with my mental illness, there's nothing in the, in the evangelical theology or even in, um, or even in a lot of Christian, there's nothing in evangelical theology. There's not a lot in Christian theology that can deal with the idea that somebody like I'm relegated. Okay. The, uh, the fact that I'm born with a disorder in my, in my brain and I've, and I've had it my entire life. Like I've had anxiety attacks when I was six and depression. And, uh, I started having suicidal thoughts when I was 11 or 12, like, you know, all these, all these kinds of things. Like it, this has been a lifelong, you know, dream, if you will. So, it, so, but evangelicalism has nothing to deal with that. Like I'm simply part of a broken world. Well, I wonder if that's actually true. You know, like, is that just too simplistic? You know, like sin becomes this such an important thing in evangelicalism. Like, like people are sinful. There's original sin. And because there's original sin and there's the sinfulness, that's what, that's what explains the brokenness and stuff. And I'm like, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. Like the, 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 the heart of brokenness, I, I tend to think of is, you know, Jesus in Gethsemane, you know, crying blood because like, he doesn't want to do this. And then, being dragged and whipped and, and beaten and then being forsaken by the father on the cross, you know, like that seems to be brokenness right there. And I don't know that that's any sort of like, like does Jesus sin in there? I, I mean, if we say he does, then we're heretics. And if he doesn't, we're good. But then what do you do with that? Like, I mean, like, but that's the pain and that's the suffering. And like, there's no, there's no answer. And so like the fact that like, Basically, I am a deconstruction or I am, I am the not answer if any evangelicalism made it really hard to like stay there. You know, like I get tired of people telling me pray harder or think better or, you know, you should say positive thoughts or, you know, I don't know what else. Uh, stay away from, you know, these books or, or, you know, don't read this person or, you know, like I, I'm a huge fan of Jacques Derrida. And a couple of people told me that Jacques Derrida was a postmodern thinker and postmodernism is going to make you depressed. And I said, I think that it's more that the world makes you depressed and postmodernism just points it out. But, you know, like, <laughs> uh, but yeah. no, you know, it, it, that, so, so for me, all those things can like, all those things turn around and move. And, um, you know, like there's an intellectual thing. There's the fact that I don't want my son acting like, you know, James Dobson or, you know, like selling out to Donald Trump, like that's sickening. Um, uh, or Russell Moore or some of these other, Russell Moore didn't sell out. I, I should say that. I just, I think he's wrong most of the time. You know, like I don't want my sons acting like that. You know, um, I don't want them being in an environment where women are put down. Even if, even if you say women are in ministry and then you don't allow any women in ministry, like it, it seems that you're saying is, is not really working. Um, you know, like, or they're only relegated to like children's ministry, you know, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. Like, I just don't want my kids around that. And then, you know, with my mental illness that just, it, I don't fit. So all those things coming together, it made it really easy to like, be like, well, I guess I'll see you later. 
So, you know, and I still have friends that are evangelicals and I'm nice to them. You know, like I, I, I play nice, but I'm, I'm, but it makes me, I don't, I don't know why they're still there. I don't get it. I've, I've kind of turned the corner, I guess. So. Hmm. Yeah. So I, I think you hit on a lot of things that are, um, very central to, um, a lot of the critiques that, that are very common with evangelicalism, power being one of them, power being a central focus, you know, whether it's the power of God, the power of the, the male pastor to tell everybody else what's what and to fall in line, um, the, the lack of disorder, um, the discomfort with disorder, um, you know, the very idea is just anathema to the to an, a lot of people just because it seems like it's a threat to either God's sovereignty or God's control or something else. Um, but the alternative is that it could actually be a very humanizing thing and it actually makes, you know, the, the story of Christ much more humanizing. Just as you said, Jesus was a, Jesus was suffering. He was suffering in Gethsemane. He was an, an tremendous, an immense trauma. And to, you know, to try to alleviate that trauma just by saying that whatever, whatever sort of excuse you want to have, um, that not calling it what it is. Um, was that a major, I'm, I'm kind of leading into an, a question here, but was that more of a, was, was that another instance of, yeah, this, you're trying to fit the world to your view instead of trying to understand the world as it is. Uh, yeah. I remember when I would, I would, so I was sitting at an academic conference and I was sitting with a guy who, um, who says that God suffers. And I, I don't even know if we were talking about that. Like, I think that, I think that the papers we gave were on something else, but this was a famous theologian. And so like all of a sudden people started kind of picking at him, like, I can't believe you say that and stuff. And there was like these four guys and they were committed to being, to, to, to protecting God from suffering. And I was just like, you guys, you guys are terrible people. Like, number one, like if God doesn't like, yeah, anyway, I mean, like, how do you deal with the cross? You know, does God suffer on the cross? Is there physical pain? If there's not, then you seem to be in a whole other set of like ancient heresies, you know, like, and so, uh, um, so like that for me, and then I read a guy named Jürgen Moltmann, uh, a book called The Crucified God, and he talks about God dying. And it, it just, it opened my eyes up. And I read that in seminary, I, I believe. Um, it opened my eyes up to the possibilities of, what happens when we actually imagine that the God of the universe is human? You know, like if we really take that seriously. Um, and so, and one of my professors in seminary was always really big on, um, he said a lot, uh, the, 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 the heresy was the, the biggest heresy of, the, uh, of, uh, of uh, our time. And that's the heresy that Jesus isn't actually human. Uh, Jesus is still, just God. And because he's just God, uh, he can't suffer. He can't, you know, he, he knows everything. He, you know, like all these kinds of things. And like, and it just seems that if you read the biblical text, like those things are just not, 
those things are things that we put on it. And I'm tired of, I'm tired of making God into something that I think God should be. Um, it seems, it seems more that God makes me into something that God thinks I should be. So, um, at least that's how it seems to work in the, in the Bible. So yeah, I'm the non-evangelical taking the Bible seriously. And that just makes, and that just makes people live it. So, but yeah. And does that get to your. Yes, it does. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 I know. And I was, I was leading it. I was leading that a little bit. Um, but I, I was kind of working, working through the question and working towards my question at the same time, if that makes any sense. No, Um, that, that works. So, um, so yeah, let's, uh, I mean, I want to touch on both this aspect of um, this aspect of power being central to a particular evangelical understanding and how that, how that has influenced your interactions within the church. Cause you've been in a number of ministry, um, a number of ministry positions, not just within academic positions, but, you know, actively working in local churches um so I, I want to talk a little bit about that and then um then I also want to talk again back to what you were kind of saying about uh, disorder and brokenness um and just a discomfort that that people have with that within evangelicalism so power being central is really just um within my within my experience um I grew up United Methodist, but then, um, the church, the church that we got like really involved in here and, um, here in our neighborhood and everything was non-denominational, but essentially like for all intents and purposes, it was Southern Baptist and power was, was a huge thing. Women weren't, um, even though like we grew up United Methodist, we love the people and we kind of put up with this, this um, view of complementarianism and women not being allowed in leadership roles and things like that. Um, And power was just such a central thing, but it's not just something that is present within. um, It's not just something that's present within non-denominational or evangelical churches. It's something that's present in lots of places. But what do you think it is about evangelicalism that makes that the attribute that has the most appeal to people with people that are leading churches, the things that they want to, is it because, because it centralizes their locus of control? Is it because of that? Or is it because the understanding of God is that God is powerful. I need to be powerful. We, you know, we need to, have this appearance of strength at all times. How has that kind of shown up in your life? Cause wow. I mean, it, it seems like, I mean, it seems like from what you said, like it's shown up several times, like oh, power, yeah. power is power and influence and control and authority. All of those things all together. Those are things that like within evangelicalism are closely guarded. And, um, and I'm I'm gonna kind of get up on my own little soapbox here, but the thing that influenced me the most at my at at co- at college was when we were in a Greek class and and we 
spent a long, long time on the Philippian hymn, and that is all about Jesus giving up his control over and over and over again. Like uh-huh. it's all about him putting, taking away <laughs> all of his power and becoming human and then putting everyone before himself. And that is the God that, um, that is the God that reveals himself to us. Um, so I'm sorry to go off on that, like right in the middle of my question. <laughs> but, no, no, you're, I mean, but, you're, you're exactly right though. Like that's because it's, it's even an ethical hymn. Like it's a, uh, it, it, because it like Philippians two kind of runs through something and it's like, it's like a call and a response. Like, it's almost like a jazz thing. Like, like Paul says, like, is this how we're supposed to live? And then it's like, and Jesus lived this way, you know? And like, oh, and so it's like, it's like the response to the question of how then should we live? You live like Jesus did. You give it all up. You become a slave. You don't hear that very often in even. We don't hear that very often in American churches, you know, like, so giving, giving stuff up, giving up power or, or if it's not like a 10% of my income, you don't, I mean, you're not talking, uh, people just don't do it anyway. So they're not, they're not interested in it and stuff. And I mean, I think that the ability to control what you think you should control, like I have dealt with a lot of pastors. I've dealt with a lot of pastors who are white men who think that they have to be, well, the buck stops with me. Well, why? Well, it just does. Why? I mean, you're, if you're United, if you're a, if you are a United Methodist pastor, it doesn't really matter because you can get moved at any point in time, or you can stay there for the next thirty years, depending on, you know, like whatever, depending on how the 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 domination sees you and what you can do and that kind of stuff. Like, so really there's, there is no reason for you to be the power hungry, crazy person that most pastors are, um, you know, like yeah, there just isn't, but then also like, but they are. And I don't know that it's a view of God as much as I hear again, though, I will, I will, I will ram my, uh, my theological education, so much of theological education, like practical courses and stuff. Like I was told you're in charge. Like you've got to take control. You've got to be, you know, you've got to be the man. Like your leadership is central. Like you doing, you taking charge and you setting the precedent and stuff. And it's like, well, if you look at the history of the church, like, like I teach preaching at a seminary. Like if you look at the history of the church, the, the pastor never picked out what they were going to preach on. It was this thing called a lectionary. And the lectionary says each week, these are the, ver- you know, this is the, these are the passages that we, we should use to preach on. And the entire church used that. And then somehow we stopped doing that. Uh, I'm not sure exactly when. Um, and so like, so there was no control over the fact over what you were going to say or what, what your topic was. Like you were given a, you know, a scripture passage, but we don't do that. Like now we're, you know, I think the church needs to hear this series for the next eight weeks, you know, like, you know, and then it's some topic like why marriage sucks, but can be awesome or something like that. And it's like, <laughs> you know, like what? So, um, you know, there's this great, you know, like, uh, uh, yeah. So I think that that's a lot of the power dynamic I think is just, is, is denominations and, and people, they read books and they read stuff that say that they're supposed to be in charge. 
and that they are in charge and they need to take control of that charge. And when in reality is like, there's no reason for you to be in charge. The best pastor. So the two best pastors I've ever been under one was a woman uh, at a Quaker church and in a Quaker church, no one's in charge. Like, it's just kind of a, you know, like it's a very open, uh, like, our things were, you know, our meetings were basically like, so what do you guys think? No, really? Like, what what's everyone think? Does anybody have an idea? I guess we can continue doing it this way. <laughs> All right, I guess we will. And it was like 20 minutes. Like, it was the shortest, sweetest, easiest thing that I've ever been a part of. And I thought, wow, this is, this is perfect. Um, not all churches work like that. Um, and then, but then... Uh, had another pastor that was that was very similar and like he would sit and listen to what was going on and what was being talked about in, in, in ministry meetings or in other meetings and stuff and he might give guidance but his goal was always to make sure that the congregation was leading the charge you know there were times where he had to say well you know like what you're saying is going to cost us fifty thousand dollars like we can't really do that um or like now think about like how many volunteers we have or something like that. And I think a lot of pastors really want to be that guy, but they just can't do it. And a lot of, a lot of people that, that say they're leaders, they want to be that guy, but they just, they can't do it. Like if you think of Jesus, like Jesus sends the 72 out, he sends the 12 out, sends the 72 out. And he has, I mean, really in the biblical narrative, he has no idea what they're doing. Like he's like, go out and do this. And then like, he's basically like chilling at a rock or whatever. And like, he has (laughs) no idea what these people are actually doing. Like they could be, you know, and so, but like so many people today, like pastors uh, and and church leaders, like send them out and then like follow you. And they're like, what are you doing? I'm doing what you told me to. Are you sure? Yep. Are you sure? I think so. Do you just want to do it? Yeah. It made me feel a lot better if, if I just did it. And that's how like a lot of churches kind of work. Like, that's how a lot of pastors work. It's how a lot of leaders work. I mean, even like uh, my wife gets caught up in that in the business world at times, like people trying to to do that. And I, I, I think it's, I don't, I don't know what it is. I, I it, it, it drives me nuts. Cause like, if you really don't want me to do something, like I don't have to, I have other things I can do. Like, you know, that's the Tommy boy thing. I can take a dump in a box. I got time. You know, like, <laughs> so like, you know, like it's, <laughs> So I say I say that to my son all the time. And he's just like, Dad. Uh, <laughs> that's a deep cut. That's, that's uh, it. that that takes me back right there. <laughs> <laughs> that was that's a favorite of mine. Uh, so, uh, but yeah, I, I just don't know what to. I don't know what to do with power because right? people seek it, and I I've always tried to give it up. But it's always my wife makes fun of me. She's like, because I was a youth leader, I was a youth pastor, and she's like you have to be in charge. And I said, I don't want to be in charge. I don't want to be in charge of the trip. I don't want to, like, I'm taking these kids on a trip. And she's like, well, you have to. And she's like, watching you try and lead a group is hilarious. Cause you're like, what do you guys want to do? Like, I'm very much like, I, I it's just, it's not comfortable to me. Um, so I don't know what to do with it. Like, I, I just wouldn't know what to, like, I've never been in charge. So I don't know what to, I don't know how to deal with the whole power thing. And then there's the whole, like, I know the deconstructions and the, and the, the, the coal stuff and everything. And that everyone's just really, you know, maybe that's where original sin comes in. Like everyone really is just a jerk and they just, they're looking out for their own self-interest. So, um, yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, sure. sure. And so, yeah, but that, yeah, that's, that goes off on a whole other tangent. So <laughs> I just, I just don't know what to, I don't know what to do with that in evangelicalism because it, it just is. And even in, in the regular church, like, I just don't know how to, other than just to get rid of all the leadership books, but, and to like kind of start over again, but that's not going to happen. So, yeah. Yeah. So another thing that you mentioned a while back was this, this sense that, you know, you weren't, you weren't the fit. You you didn't fit. And you've attributed, um, you've attributed that at different points in our conversation so far to your, um, to your bipolar diagnosis. I don't know. And honestly, this is where you need to, you know, chime in and let me know whether, what sort of nomenclature is appropriate. So, um, you know, whether it's disorder or whatever else, um, it's a disorder. Yeah, you're good. Okay. So, so that has been a major part of your personal story is that even prior to, you've only been, you've been diagnosed in the last few years here, but you've been present within church activity and everything else for your, for the majority of your life. What are some of the ways that this disorder has made, made you feel like you're not the right fit? And also people's reaction to you. So that that's two different things. You know, there's your experience and then there's other, other people's experience interacting with you and how they've reacted to you. Like actually not just passively, but really actively. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the way people have reacted to, uh, uh, when I was in college, my second semester of my freshman year, I finally went to a counselor who was not a, anyway, I went to somebody to see them and they were like, Oh my word. Like you have, you are textbook major depression. And so I was diagnosed with major depressive disorder then. Um, however, because I was at a conservative Christian college after a year of taking my meds, I stopped because, um, you know, I can pray it away. So, uh, and that's kind of how, that's a lot of the reaction for up until the last two years, a lot of the reaction to my mental illness was, can't you just kind of pray it away? Can't you just, uh, um, you know, if, if you just work hard enough at it, if you just, whatever, um, can it, won't it go away? Uh, it's funny with the bipolar People have been a little more understanding. It's, but they're a little more freaked out too. Could you give a little synopsis of what bipolar entails? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, because most people think of bipolar and they think of somebody like you know shooting up a, a theater or something. Um, and actually, a, a bipolar person is more likely to be uh, to have to be a victim of a major uh, of a of a violent crime than actually committed. I'm supposed to say that whenever I talk about you know say something like that. Um, bipolar. So there's. There's a couple different kinds of, of bipolar disorder, but basically it's, it is made or it's defined by the fact that you have these two poles to your mood. So your mood being happy, sad, basically, and, um, unipolar depression or major depression is you only have one mood isn't, and that's depression or you have like kind of a normal, and then you go back into this major depression bipolar you also have this other one called a manic or a hypomanic um so you have hypomania or mania and then also major depression hypomania is hypomania and mania these are defined by things like 
you start going out and having multiple sexual partners or you have a messiah complex. You have boundless energy. You don't sleep. Um, like in my, in my typical, and, and hypomania, it was like mania light. So it's, it's like, you don't quite get to manic stages. Manic stages tend to, uh, devolve into psychosis. So, um, I don't have manic stages. I am what's called bipolar two. So I tend to have a whole lot more of, I tend to have 30 to 40 depressive episodes for every hypomanic episode. Um, a regular bipolar person would have three or four depressive episodes to every um, manic episode. So, uh, but mania, uh, you know, you spend too much money, you, uh, and when I say spend too much money, it's like you go out and spend like $20,000 on jewelry. Or um, uh, one time I bought $600 of books. That was great. Uh, um, I've read quite a few of them now, but it took me a while. <laughs> it took a while. So, <laughs> That's a lot of books. That's uh... That's a lot of books. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So um, trying to think of other things. Uh, Yeah. Boundless energy. Don't sleep. Like in my hypomanic states, I sleep for two or three hours a night. Actually, actually that's, that's not true. I go until I can't stay awake anymore. And then I I go to sleep for two or three hours and wake up to just fresh as a daisy and go again until I crash again. And sometimes that's 30, 36 hours. Sometimes it's 24. I mean, it can, yeah, it can vary. So, um, I mean, when even, when, when even your 10, six and four year old are like, dad, you need to slow down. Uh, you know, <laughs> you know, the world is going, uh, thing. So, uh, but then on the, on the flip side, depression, uh, is, is defined by, for me, it's defined pretty badly. Um, I sleep a lot, uh, I have really bad suicidal ideation, which means I have suicidal thoughts. Um, and my wife and I have a plan put in place where um, if certain things happen, we go to the hospital. Well, there's a the, we know where the nearest. Whenever we go on vacation or we go anywhere, we know where the nearest psychiatric ward is. And so, um, so that there's just I've never been hospitalized like that, but we're prepared. And she has the ability to put me in at any time she sees fit, which is scary. So, um, because my my worst fear, like my biggest nightmare, is being confined and closed in a small, like a, a space like that, like not being able to get out. So, if I have to go to that, it's really bad. Um, so that that doesn't. So getting back to that, that just doesn't fit with a lot of people's mindset of like how God made you like people are like, well, God made you happy. And I'm like, I'll show you happy. And then like, um, or, you know, like God made you like thoughtful or melancholy or something like that. Like I don't like, it doesn't work because the, the, um, cause I move. I mean, I, I just do, I, I bounce up and down like a ball and I rapid cycle too, which is, uh, typically you have like one or two episodes a year. I can have four five, eight, um, which is, you know, it's, that's hard on you. It, 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 to bounce up and down like that. So, um, and it's hard on your family and stuff. And, and, and um, it makes it, but it, it makes it hard to like, like, I really, really, um, I really find that God, when Jesus is is crying in Gethsemane and when he's feels forsaken on the cross, like I know what that's like. I've been in that kind of depression. Like I, I it's awful. I've, I've felt forsaken by God. 
But then I also like, I'm really aware of, and I know I have that, I've had that experience of like touching somebody and like feeling the energy, like just like bolt out of you, you know, and like somebody being better for it, you know, like not that I've healed anybody, you know, like I'm not, I'm not Benny Hinn, but I, I'm, uh, but I know what like, like that, that kind of closeness and like that want to the Messiah complex, you know, like the feeling that you can like change and save the entire world. I know what that's like too. And so it's just, uh, it's difficult because yeah, in, most, in most churches that just doesn't work. Like you just don't like, you don't hear sermons about that. You know, like you don't hear, and there's nothing, there's nothing there for someone like me, you know, like even though one in four people in the United States suffers from a mental illness, there's nothing in churches for that. You know, except for the the Rick Warren thing, which I think is crap. So again, the evangelical thing. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I, I just don't, I don't know what to, I don't, yeah, the whole not fitting, the whole like, and I, the whole disorder idea, like you, my mind is not ordered, even on my meds and stuff like. That that at, at its best it's tenuous you know like but that's the way the universe is like chaos theory seems to make the most sense to to people uh physicists and stuff like that and uh and my mind is a walking chaos theory you know like it, it, i can i can sit down and write a a, a chapter for a or a, an article really well on you know on derrida's you know radical hermeneutics or whatever but i can't but uh, but that only lasts so long you know I don't know. I, I'm kind of rambling. Like I'm just, I don't know how to get my thoughts around this. No, and I mean that's honestly one of the major themes that you know you kind of run into when you when you run in when you're starting to really try to critique evangelicalism is really it's messy. <laughs> I, I don't. I, I mean that's to me it's one of the it's one of the terms that is the most appropriate. And one of the like taglines I have for this is actually coming to terms with a messed up subculture. And the reason is, is it's, it is disordered, but in a, it's in, it's in a way that tries to portray orderliness. And to me that, that is something that is kind of damaging about it. Not kind of, I'll remove kind of, it's damaging. Yeah. And I feel, I mean, yeah, I mean, the psychological damage that happens to some people, like I remember Church is trying to make two people that are married, they obviously got married under false pretense, you know, whatever. Like they shouldn't be married anymore. And like trying to, to shove them together and keep them together, despite all the evidence that this is, this is damaging to both people. Like, and not just like damaging for like a couple of months, like this has been years and like, but, but churches, we have this belief that like we can fix anything and that's not like that's God's role. Like we're not the fixers. Like we're the people we're mediators and we're people that can, you know, be there and listen and stuff, but we're not, not, yeah, it's not our, our job, you know, like it seems to me that God's the one that heals people, not us. So, and I think that's the biggest one for me. That's one of the biggest things of evangelicalism is like this, there was this constant belief 
or even telling me that, that you could be healed or you can feel better if you just did a little bit more or believed a little bit better or whatever. And like, I even had a prophet IWU tell me that like that my, and he told another student that too, I found out, um, you know, like, you know, that, Hey, just go pray and spend some time in prayer. And this person, yeah. At this point in your life, you're, um, you are actually addressing these issues head on. You are the director of a nonprofit called here, here, um, which addresses mental illness. So could you talk a little bit um, about what work you do there and um, how, you know, how your life, everything has kind of, uh, sorry, let me, let me, (laughs) let me do a little, let me do a little take two there. Um, so now at this point, um, at this point in your life, you are the director of a nonprofit that you started called Here Here, um, which addresses mental illness in the church and elsewhere um, for those who have mental illness as well as um, their loved ones. So what, um, what sort of work do you do with Here Here to really help kind of correct this sort of um, unhealthy, unhelpful sort of approach to mental illness within the church and elsewhere? Well, we work, okay, first off, we work with just about any organization that would have us. And, uh, our work is, um, no, uh, yeah, I'm not only the executive director. Yeah, I guess that's what we, that's the title we put on it. Um, but I, I also, I founded it this last, yeah, a while ago. So, um, and what we do is, we work in three areas. Number one is education and advocacy. And that is we do, so we'll do workshops. Um, we'll do, uh, you know, the big like chapels or whatever else, a school or at a church or whatever. Like I'm, I'm going to preach at a church on Sunday and, and talk about some of this stuff and, uh, and, and talk about mental illness, uh, and, and everything. And I'm also a certified, uh, a suicide interventionist. So if somebody is afraid that, uh, so I can do training uh, for that suicide interventionist. And so like, if somebody's afraid that like their friend or colleague um, might be suicidal or whatever, I can help them walk through the ways, walk through the uh, steps and the questions and stuff, and then hopefully get them um, referred to a, to somebody that can, that can help them. So uh, that's one of the things we do. The second thing we do is we've uh, developed curriculum and for uh, support groups, we call them here, here groups. Uh, and these peer to peer support groups can meet anywhere. Um, and they're just kind of like what you think, just a support group for people with mental illness. And we're trying to develop them for, for loved ones as well, but it's, it's a little more difficult. In our groups, we use uh, three, three specific things. The first is we have a little bit of time of meditation or mindfulness. Um, it's been shown to, help calm and steady, uh, your mind a little bit, especially for mentally ill people who are, uh, whose minds are usually overloaded. And so, uh, just a few minutes at the beginning of the time, just a quiet and to, uh, we call it just be here, just be here now, just settle in, um, and let your thoughts kind of wash over you. Uh, then we have a discussion. And then at the end of the discussion, we have a time of reflection where, where we write down two, uh, one, two, three, uh, action items that we have. Uh, that we we garnered for that week from the group, so the, then we're not just sitting in group and like kind of talking or whatever, but we uh, actually uh, then we'll go out 
or then each person can then say, well, I think I can work on this, or I think I can do this, or or whatever. Um, and then the third thing that we do is we work with artists, uh, and that's not just uh, painting or, or visual arts, but also um, music and, and whatever else, um, all arts, uh, doing their thing. And we're, we, we are patrons of the arts, and then we use the arts as a way of connection. You know, using a song, or we've been using, uh, we have, uh, I've been working with some artists uh, here and here locally uh, that, you know, create incredible stuff that uh, connects with people and that is able to connect, you know, like if you have a mentally ill person and someone who's not mentally ill and you both are able to connect over this painting, then that, that makes a big deal. Um, that makes a, that's a place of, um, of connection and of, of uh, a mutual participation, even, you know, you, you both participate in the painting and looking at it and whatever else, or listening to music or whatever else. Uh, and it's also, those are also places where uh, the mentally ill tend to congregate uh, in that you have people that with uh, high mental illnesses that are, you know, doing, you know, they're, they're doing paintings, they're doing music, they're doing sculpture, they're doing, you know, graphic arts, that kind of stuff. And so uh, we found that it's a good outlet for them and it's a good place to allow them to continue to uh, do their work. So we've, so that's where we, that's where we do our work. Um, And it's, we look to work with churches and stuff because they're great places. Number one, they have good space, but then number two, it's a good outreach ministry, being a place that opens your walls to the least of these, you know, like, you're talking about getting people in that, you know, I've had, uh, there's a guy that I know that, um, you know, he was, he was almost blown up by a, by an IED in Iraq, you know, and like he's messed up, but he, uh, has PTSD and, and, you know, creating space for him, you know, like, or creating space for the other, you know, for, you know, for me, you know, like, uh, someone who on a given day can, you know, be thinking about, you know, the rope and, and uh tree outside as, as a way out, you know, like, you know, creating the space and, and, and showing those people the, the, the love of Christ, I think is really, it's not really important, but it, it, it is really important, but it, it also creating that space gives them the feeling that it's a congregation that will actually accept them love. Because honestly, when I tell people that we want to work with churches, uh, the from mental Ill, mentally ill people, it's almost always like, why? I don't want to go to a church. Churches hate me. Like, it's almost always that's the conversation. Why? Churches suck. Churches hate us. And it's like, I I don't think that that hap- has to be the case. Um, I know there are good churches out there. There are good places where people can be, can thrive and can learn what it is to be loved, you know, and to be loved by God. And so I, those are, those are places that we're looking to find and to work with, you know, and like, we would never put a group, we never put a group or do a workshop in a place that was going to be closed off or say something like you need to pray more or, or something like that. Like those are just not, those are unhelpful. You know, like we do need to pray more, but everyone needs to pray more. You know, if you're not saying that to the pastor, then you shouldn't say that to anybody else, you know, that kind of thing. So, mm-hmm. so that's where we work. That's what we, we do. That's, uh, we work with churches and stuff. We work with any organizations, but, um, you know, churches are a good place because good space and, and they can get the word out and stuff and, and, and they have a desire to help people, you know, like there's a mutual for all, for all the kind of the chaos that I talk about and stuff in churches, 
there's a mutual desire among the people in churches to actually try and help people. Um, even with the power dynamics and all that kind of stuff. And so I, I really believe that. And so I, I, cause otherwise I don't know why you would even, I don't, I don't know why you would even be involved in a church. Like they're just not that interesting, you know, like, but the mutual movement to help somebody else I think is important. And uh, I don't know that people always are given the, uh, the impetus and the tools to, to help. And so what, that's what we're trying to do is give churches, give churches, give every organization uh, the impetus and the tools to to help the mentally ill. That's great. Um, so you can answer this specific to here, here, or you can answer it more generally. Where would you, um, where would you give someone that doesn't know that much about mental illness um, that may be coming at it from an evangelical perspective or from just a generally uninformed perspective, not to equate the two, just someone that, that may not, that, that just may not be familiar with the sort of challenges that someone with any sort of mental illness, whether it's anxiety or bipolar or depression or anything else, um, that, that has a significant impact on someone's day to day mental and overall life. Um, where would you give them to start? Um, is there like a place that that you might recommend just from your own personal story? Um, and this doesn't have to be a book. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be a book um, because really one of the things that is kind of, and I think even in our conversation here, one of the things we um, folks that kind of bristle against evangelicalism is the assumption that all the answers are already there. Um, and so a lot of times sort of the thing that makes you exit that sort of world that has all the answers is finding the right place to start, like either the right question or the right, some other starting point. Um, so if you were our theoretical novice here, what would you give them to start thinking about what they can do to either address their own mental illness um, or to be able to understand um, someone else's mental illness in a more humane and compassionate way. Uh, to address your own mental illness, go to a counselor, uh, a licensed mental health counselor, or a therapist of some sort. Um, so if you if you think that you know if you've been depressed or you have anxiety or, or something like that, and you're not getting it taken care of. That would be the place to start with that. Um, for trying to kind of get a hold on like what it what it entails like lifestyle wise and stuff I, there's a website called the mighty um and it tells and i've written a couple i've written a couple of things for the mighty uh and it tells a lot of different kinds of stories about a lot of different kinds of uh illnesses um and they they divide things in between uh, phys, uh physical chronic illnesses and uh mental chronic illnesses or mental illnesses and stuff. And so um, it's a good place because not only you, you get a lot of like stories about like, like I read one today, um, this woman talking about, she, she told her daughters who are like 12 and 14, I think about her bipolar disorder. And so, um, you know, the struggle with, you know, telling them about that, how she told them that kind of stuff. Um, it, it, it gives a world into like what the mentally ill go through on a, on a consistent basis. Like I wrote, I wrote a piece and it was published on Monday, I think about, um, 
you know, like if you're preparing for college, like, what do you, you know, what do you do? You know, like, and I had 12 things, you know, sleep, don't do drugs, that kind of stuff. So it's a, that's a good site. You know, here, here has our blog. You can always read that. Um, that's mostly my music things on whatever which we have we have other people we had a girl uh, a woman i shouldn't say a girl a woman that i know um and she wrote about her experience being hospitalized uh and um you know a few uh, that was about six weeks ago and uh there's some other stuff like that on there um we try to tell stories uh to write love on our arms has a lot of stories um and jamie's i don't actually i don't know that jamie's book would be real good um it's it's more poetic than it is like actually giving you in. But uh, there's another book by I think by Kevin Briel called Boy Meets Depression or Depression Meets Boy or something like that. Um, and uh, it's it's interesting. It's good. It's got um, you know it's got good things to say and stuff. Now all this oh, oh all this can be a little bit salty with language and all that kind of stuff um, when you're in the throes of despair or mania or anxiety you know an anxiety attack or whatever else uh you don't tend to think about whether or not you're you're saying something that could offend somebody else you're thinking about whether or not you're going to live to the next moment so um those are so you know like just be aware of that if you're looking there but if you really think that you are struggling you know like if you're thinking like I really thought that it was normal for a long time to think, you know, to look at a tree and go, Oh, I wonder what it'd be like to hang from there as a, you know, hang a noose and, and hang there. Um, that's not normal. And so like, if you're having those kinds of thoughts, like if you look at a knife and think about plunging it into your wrist or something like that, like you should see a counselor. Um, that's really important. Uh, and because it's not normal, it's not right. And then they can begin to get you on the right road to, uh, medications and, and that, you know, doctors and psychiatrists and that kind of stuff. So, so it's two different answers, I think, but those are the, those are the, those are the major places to make sense. And if you want to, and if you want to find any information, uh, NAMI, the national association of mental illness or the, the it's NAMI.org. They have all sorts of statistics and all sorts of other stuff. Um, Okay, that's great. We'll we'll add that and um, the other things that you mentioned to the show notes, so that we can kind of point people towards that, um, towards those resources. Um, one of the one of the uh, one of the kind of remaining questions I have, and I'll be honest, I haven't asked something quite so direct just yet, and in one of the interviews um and you can let me know if this is you can let me know um if this is you know overreaching or anything else but um you're okay so this i haven't really gotten to this question explicitly in the handful of interviews i've done yet but it's really one of the kind of the main driving forces i have for why i'm doing this for myself and why i'm why i'm want to hear from other people too, is given the breadth of your experience and that includes a considerable amount of actual like pain and suffering. What about the Christian story? What about Christianity? What about any of this really makes you want to stay? Um, and even though you've removed yourself from this uh, starting point of evangelicalism, um, you know, you have, you, you're still active within the church world. You're still 
very much engaging with these questions. Um, what is it that makes you want to stay? And I, and I should also preface, and this is kind of um, prefacing for future discussions, but because I think that I'm, I'm going to have, I'm, I am going to have discussions with people that didn't stay, but their, their responses are just as valid. Um, but for you, uh, your story, you, you still have, um, I've, I've read some of your, I've read some of your, um, essays and there are periods where, you know, you feel, you don't feel any sort of compulsion. I mean, and there's a lot of depression there and there's, and there's an absence, a feeling of absence of the, the idea of God or of God. But then even um, what you've shared so far, you also have experiences of something acting out through you. Those experiences are not congruent, but they're both valid. Um, what makes you continue to identify like with, within any spectrum of Christianity? You know what I mean, um, and I—that's like the—that's the question. That's uh, I, really the question of this podcast. It's the question for a lot of people, <laughs> but uh, so I know it's—it's it's not a simple question, and it's kind of hard to throw it at the end. <laughs> but, but I mean, the, that's why I'm—that's why I'm so interested in these conversations, and it's because people see things. They—they—they they, they go through the ringer, and this thing that was kind of sold as a simple answer was not the thing, but there, there very well may be something else there. So I'm going to stop rambling here and let you answer. Uh, what do I stay? Man, that's a good question. That's a really good question because right now I don't know. Uh, I stay because of my wife maybe, um, uh, I mean, to be honest with you in February, in January, I quit at a church and I quit because I was put through the ringer. I was beat up and I was discriminated against because of my mental illness. And, um, and it was awful. It was awful. It hurt me so bad and so deeply. And the, 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 that for me going back into a church at the moment is a really hard thing. We've gone to a couple of churches and stuff, and, uh, and there's been some actually that that have been great. I should I should say that we went to an African, I know, yeah, an African Methodist Episcopal church, and it was fantastic, and they welcomed us, and um, it just happened that it, it's it's an hour away from our house, and it's two and a half hours long, and so that's that you know with the three boys that just isn't very feasible for us, but um, but even they loved it, and so anyway, uh, I just. Why do I stay? I stay because I can't leave. I just, I've tried. I keep trying. And something keeps pulling me back in, you know, just like Al Pacino in the, in the end, like, but right now I can say that I'm staying because I believe in God and I believe in a God that, uh, suffers pain and, and a God that, um, hears our stories and walks to hell with us, you know, um, and, and, and enjoys life with us. Uh, I think that that's the God you get in, the, in, in scripture and stuff, you know, and, you know, celebrates with us and, and, and walks with us and talks with us and stuff. But I'm not staying because of the church. That's just not. And I, and I feel like, I feel like if the church at this moment is what, 
gives us our sense of religiosity or Christianity. Uh, and I think I told this, I, cause I know John Dodgell, uh, you know, that the church is, is, is dead. Like it, it's a, because right now everything's so they just don't have their head on, like there's just nothing there. Um, and I've been in a lot of churches and I've spoken to a lot of people and a lot of different stuff. And I, I just like, that seems to be the same story, but, God is not about the church. It's about something bigger than that. Or I think maybe smaller episodes, you know, like um, the conversations I have with friends or the times where, you know, like we sit around and, and share you know, our hurts and stuff. And like that, that's what real church is, you know, not walking into this building and, and talking and stuff. So, and I think that's where God is, you know, like God is in the, is in the moments where we, you know, sit and have a beer and chat stuff up or we, you know, like, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Jesus was, he showed up and did a subversive act in a temple once, and then he threw a lot of crap around the temple and they're selling stuff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Not much else happens in the temple. Not much else well, happens and, in the temple. Yeah, I mean, the early church met in houses and stuff. And part of that was, I think intentional. And part of that was just a necessity of, of their circumstances, but I just, I am, I have no faith in the church as an institution to actually do anything right. I've, I've been hurt and beaten up by them too many times. And I've, and that might just be my cynicism at the moment saying that and it may just be, um, you know, I just don't have a whole lot there, but I do have faith that God, uh, will be there. And I've had like, yeah. Uh, listening to Steve talk, I, I've had some, you know, similar experiences where I just can't, I can't let go of the fact that I've had these experiences, you know, like I've, you know, I've, I've felt the warmth of God. I've, I've seen, uh, you know, saying I've seen the face of God is a really, is a really, it's not something I'm real, like, I don't know. In a, in a, but in a moment of meditation, I just had this incredible experience. And like, and so uh, I just felt like I was face to face with God and it was a, it was a beautiful moment, but you know, fleeting, but it was still like, those are just things that I just can't let go of, you know? And I know people that have had similar experiences and they still have let go, you know, like, and so that's, that's, I'm not, I'm not dissuade. I'm not, I understand that it's not at the be all end all. I just, those are there. So those are there and they're important to me. And I've had incredible experiences with people, and those are the moments where I think God is the most real, you know, it's funny. I don't know that I've ever felt or been convinced that God is in a church, but God is in people and, and, and things and moves and, and, and lives. And so it's not, not stuck. You know, nobody has a, nobody has a, a right on it, on God, on the vine, you know, like, and so that gives me faith. Like nobody, nobody gets to to clamp God down and put God in a box or nobody gets to, you know, chain God up. Like God does what God does. And we got to be prepared for that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think one, one thing that I've kind of experienced personally is that cause I'm, I'm still there. I'm still here. I I have the same sort of struggles with institutionalized 
church right now um, for my own narrative that I'll have to tell in a different story someday. But, um, but I feel similarly that there are times when like you begin to grow and then like you have these experiences with people and you think that your, um, that your ideas have somehow outgrown the idea of God. And then you realize that God was already there. Like God was already like way out, way out ahead of you, you know, waiting for you to get there. Um, and so for me personally, that that's, yeah, people and those things, that's absolutely for all the faults that, um, institutionalized churches have and the ways that they can discriminate and do everything else to undermine, um, the sort of wondrous thing that you can accidentally participate in, (laughs) Um, it's still there. So, uh, so I, I hear you and, uh, I'm kind of, yeah, that, that resonates with me and that's a very good answer. <laughs> so, um, uh, I think it's a, a really great place to kind of leave things that we have this, we have this thing that we're, that a lot of us, um, the two of us talking now, and then the people that, that may be listening to this, um, when it's published, like, these are the things we, we wrestle with and it's not, it's not perfect. And it it was never, it's not perfect, but it's, it's real. It's reality. It's the things we, we deal with. Um, and having a realistic picture of ourselves and of the ideas we have about God, um, the most you can ask for. Um, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. So, um, do you have any any other kind of um closing thoughts about anything um then then we'll also kind of I'll have you plug all your all your all your things online and everything else as well. So, anything else you might you might want to uh elucidate on as far as your own story or about here here or anything else? No, you can No, not really. I mean, I've I've gotten it all out there. I feel pretty good. Good counseling sessions. So we're, uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, we're, I'm, I'm, yeah. I mean, I feel pretty good. Uh, you can always go to hear, hear.org. So it's H E R E H E A R.org. Sorry. Uh, actually, I'm going to have you do that do again that second? Okay. because, uh, because your, your mic cut out a little bit. So I want to make oh, sure it's, crisp, I want to make sure it's crystal clear here. So go ahead and do it again. Uh, maybe okay. maybe um, uh, step back a little bit from the mic. I think you might have been blowing it out or something a little bit. Okay. Um, just just like maybe half an inch or something. Give All it right. another go. So, I'll, uh, I'll go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. You're good. Okay. So now, uh, yeah. So it's uh, it's h e r e h e a r dot org. You always go to hear here dot org to check out what we're doing or what I'm up to or whatever else. So. That's what, that's what, that's all that I do. I, I actually know it's not, I teach and I watch my kids, but that's a lot of what I do. So. <laughs> Great. All right. Well, thanks very much, Nate, for, um, for joining me. Thank you very much, Blake. I really appreciate it a lot, a lot. So. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks again. Thank you.